Welcome to Keith Knight, Don't Tread on Anyone in the Libertarian Institute. Joining me is Kyle Anzalone, the news editor of the Libertarian Institute and the assistant editor of Antiwar.com. We're going to be discussing the book Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, a collection of uh, historical events going back to 1953 with U.S. military uh, intervention. The book was uh, written by Scott Horton, and the audiobook has just come out. Links will be in the description below. Kyle Anzalone, thank you for uh, coming on to uh, review this book with me. Yeah, no problem. Uh, very happy to be on and uh, to talk about this book that, of course, Maybe, you know, obviously it's Scott Horton's book and everything like that. But this book, you know, means like a, a lot to me because I've been, you know, a Scott Horton listener for so long, you know, to the Scott Horton show. And now I work with Scott both at the Institute and Antiwar.com. And so seeing Scott put together this book uh, is just amazing because it's so concise. And I mean, it's not everything that gets discussed on the Scott Horton show. He didn't put the China and Russia stuff in there in under 300 pages or whatever this is. Uh, I guess it's just at 300 pages. Uh, but it, it's such a fantastic book. And, and so I'm really happy to be on talking uh, with you today about it because I think it does make a lot of these wars and what I talk about on my show and you know what we were constantly working on antiwar.com accessible to a lot more people if they read this book. So I want to give you a uh, total free reign on uh, the the big six uh, U.S. military interventions since 9/11, since this uh, explicit start of the war on terror. What is the most important thing people need to know about U.S. military intervention in Afghanistan? Yeah, so I, I guess the first thing I just want to take a second to say is that the first what like 50 pages of this book are Sky explaining like the lead up to Afghanistan. And these are all things that happened from before when I was born. And so it's different to learn about because it's just like a, a history book to me, you know what I mean? But it's absolutely fantastic. And, and there's so much important stuff in there uh, that really will like it. So if anything doesn't sound super familiar or something like, go back and read that because Scott has so many important details of what happened in there. But just starting off with Afghanistan, which of course is, you know, the, the first in the global war on terror and everything like that. I think the most important thing uh, that Scott writes about, and of course he has the whole Bug Fools Aaron that's behind me and everything, uh, but allowing Osama bin Laden, or, you know, maybe we have to like qualify that a little bit, but Osama bin Laden was able to escape Afghanistan to Pakistan when the Americans knew where he was. And there were calls, and Scott highlights this and explains all the calls and efforts made by different U.S. military commanders and things like that to actually take out the, the core group of al-Qaeda that was attempting to escape from Afghanistan to Pakistan, and they were able to do so because the Americans were far more concerned about fighting the Taliban than they were about actually, you know, killing uh, Osama bin Laden. And so it, it's just, it it's such a perfect example of essentially what happens throughout the entire war on terror. They constantly don't get distracted with the big prize, you know. The, the Taliban are no threat to the United States. Iran is no threat to the United States. And yet, you know, we, we highlight and focus our war efforts on, on, you know, these people. Saddam Hussein, another example of that. And, you know, at the expense of allowing the actual few people in the world who really want to, like, do damage to America like the Osama bin Laden's out there to escape and run rampant. And so, yeah, yeah, I just, to me, that's that's the biggest thing. Because when I was growing up as a kid, Keith, I remember all this B-roll footage we would see on TV every night on the news of these rockets slamming into these mountainsides in Afghanistan and them explaining how we're doing everything we can to bring the man who perpetrated 9-11 to justice. And it just wasn't true. The entire war on, war on, uh, war on terror narrative wasn't true. Everything they told us wasn't true. They they could have gotten Osama bin Laden had they dedicated all their resources to gain Osama bin Laden. And then the other part of that, of course, is the Taliban were willing to hand over Osama bin Laden to any third country. It, they didn't even have to fight a war in Afghanistan to hold the man who, uh, you know, was most responsible for 9-11 accountable. Right. Like we could have just had the Taliban 
turn over Osama bin Laden to what any third country so what you're going to give him to the UAE or Qatar where there's major US military bases and they're going to not give him to the United States come on we you know what or they they say third country that could even be a NATO member state give them to the UK allow them for the US to like present their extradition evidence in court just like they're doing now with Julian Assange and of course you know that's a whole fictitious case but you know we can extradite people and do from the UK to the US all the time you know there there are legal ways to handle this kind of stuff uh you know that I actually had a conversation with Eric Brakey who, who's really great and everything from Yao recently and uh it, it's even forgotten on libertarians they go how do we deal with terrorism it, it you know, if you commit a crime, if you kill Americans, there's an American justice system to handle that. And it all could have been handled that way. But George Bush wanted wars and he, he created wars for it. And briefly explain the motives of Osama bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri's group, uh, al-Qaeda. What was their motive for uh, attacking Americans uh, from 93 to uh, 2001? Yeah, so there, there's a lot of attacks in here, and in part of this time, uh, Osama bin Laden's in Sudan. He's not even in, uh, you, you know, Afghanistan or anything like that. Uh, they they carry out attacks on the USS Cole in um, in Yemen and in uh, bombings of different embassies in Kenya and Saudi Arabia and elsewhere. Uh, but you, you know, the the motivation here, what Osama bin Laden. You know, whether or not this guy believes what he's right, like he's a leader. So if he is just like some more politician who just sees this as an opportunity to recruit people to his followers, or he actually believes there are two different things, right? But it doesn't really matter. The point is, is this is the message that Osama bin Laden conveyed to get people to kill themselves in order to uh, do damage to the American empire or actually kill Americans, right? And that was that the US, uh, after the Iraq war, they stayed in the Holy Land, in, in the land of the whole uh, two holy places, Mecca, Medina, Saudi Arabia, and continued to bomb Afghanistan, or Iraq, excuse me, from there. But not only after, you know, through the 1990s and the Clinton presidency, not only were we bombing Iraq and destroying the country's infrastructure, we also had a starvation uh, sanctions campaign against that country. And so while the, the 500,000 number that's so frequently cited is inflated, there were hundreds of th thousands, like two to 300,000 Iraqi children who end up dead in the 1990s because of what America did to that country. And then they were, you know, bombing from Saudi Arabia, which is just, you know, adding insult to injury uh, when that happens. And so these kind of things start to radicalize people and start to, you know, want them to wage a war against America. Also, the occupation and the U.S. support for Israel um, of the Palestinian people is a major factor here. I think there's one more grievance he has that I'm missing. Oh, uh, the bombing of Sudan. Uh, they, they bombed that... Um, I think it was some kind of medicine facility in Sudan and you know that ends up depriving people of medicine killing a whole bunch of people but just you know how general US imperialism worked around the world where the Muslims got screwed you you know if you go back there there's some great people who point out that like if you go back to the after world war one world war two america was actually like seen as the the by people in the middle east as like defeating the occupiers or like surviving like you know what what happened to europe and everything like that you know we have freed ourselves from european col uh you know colonialism right and so Actually, it's not like Muslims just hate Americans or America or anything like that. It's been, you know, the sustained campaigns in the Middle East, I guess, stretching back from, you know, the the uh, overthrow of uh, the Iranian government in, uh, installing the Shah and then uh, everything that happened to Iran after, too. But just, you know, U.S. meddling in the Middle East has allowed Osama bin Laden to drive so many people to his cause. And, you know, it, it made sense as we've seen since, right? It's, you know, it's not like we've been involved in the Middle East, Keith, for the past, what, 30 years or so, and the number of terrorist groups has dwindled. It's absolutely exploded. And so what does that tell you? American intervention causes terrorism. And so, yeah, during the, like, as Scott explains in the first uh, chapter of his book, it's like 50 pages, but he's explained all the little things that America is doing 
to kill Muslims, uh, you know, throughout the Middle East and how uh, th this eventually, you know, allows Osama bin Laden to gather enough of a following to, you know, pull off a, a very lucky shot and uh, do carry out 9-11. What is the uh, most important information people need to know about U.S. military intervention in Iraq? Oh, man. I mean, there's so much here. And of course, for me, the, the biggest part, uh, of course, is the lies they told us to get us into that war because I believed them all. You know, I was terrified as a kid. 9-11 happened and they said that, you know, you don't know what's going to be next. It's going to be a Super Bowl or a football game or, you know, people. And th this was stupid, but like I grew up in St. Louis and like I was in like, what, fourth or fifth grade and kids in my class were like, they're going to blow up the St. Louis Arch. And so, like, you know, I was terrified. And then George Bush was saying things like, you know, we can't allow the, the smoking gun to be a mushroom cloud. And Osama bin Laden and uh, Saddam Hussein were going to team up to set off a nuclear bomb or a dirty bomb in the United States. And so, you know, for me, that's really like the, the most important thing is just debunking all those lies that, you know, there was never any connect connection between Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden. Bin line the only thing they were able to turn up is evidence that they knew was false that they tortured out of people um but uh you know i guess looking back at one of the things that doesn't get a lot of attention keith that i did want to take a, a second to highlight on that i think is extremely important is the prison camps that the united states ran in iraq and uh the the you know effects that that had down the line right and so uh, these places like Camp Buka and uh, the more popularly known uh, Abu Ghraib, you know, the, the picture of the guy standing there and like kind of with his arms spread out as a hood over his head and like a uh, schmock, like kind of a dress looking thing, like it's all raggedy and dirty and, and stuff. Uh, the, the pictures of the, you know, the, the men piled on top of each other. That is what the U.S. did to Iraqi Sunni men after they, you know, moved in and took over the country. And then we're, we're you know, somehow confused as to why, you know, these are the, the people that when, uh, you know, they end up getting released from the prison because, you know, the, the U.S. can't prove they're guilty of any crimes. A lot of them were innocent when they ended up in there, but they end up as American-hating radicals after and all join up the Islamic State and create all the blowback that, you know, and we'll we'll talk about Syria a little bit, so we we could get into that. You know, the the blowback then, but just how essentially all these American prisons throughout the the Middle East and everything are uh, jihadi like universities and you know uh, networking facilities, right? Like you get everybody together, you abuse the hell out of them, and they all start to hate the Americans that are abusing them together. And then they all, you know, become radical violent terrorists. Not all of them, but some of them become radical violent terrorists. It's not, it's, you know, not hard that these are predictable consequences. You know, ISIS leader al-Baghdadi was in Camp Buka, at least, maybe Abu Ghraib as well. The suicide bomber that killed a hundred something people or at least, you know, set up the suicide bombing leading to an event that killed over 100 people at the Abbey Gate in Kabul uh, this past August was somebody who was, you know, in, I guess, involved in terrorism in India. And then somehow the U.S. and the CIA arrest him and bring him to Afghanistan and shrug. We don't know how he got involved with the, the ISIS-K uh, group in Afghanistan, but I'm guessing it was him being in that prison. So when he got out, he went and, you know, carried out this suicide bombing that killed 13 Americans, right? Like, it these things are like obvious that's like if, if you just round up people and throw them all in camps together and you know maybe there are actually some radicals in there it, it's going to like exacerbate the terrorist problem and so yeah the, these torture prisons and camps that they ran in iraq were, are just huge problems that are continuing so we have the um uh, fake justification of 9-11 uh, being a reason to go into Iraq. We know this because a uh, project for a new American century as early as 1998 had written a letter to Bill Clinton about the need for regime change. That basically this guy, he's got nukes, uh, he, he's got these chemical weapons, he's never going to give them up. Uh, we have to uh, have sanctions and we the sanctions we have aren't working, so I think we have to move to the next step. We have the fake uh, Iraqi intelligence meeting with Muhammad Atta in Prague that uh, that still uh, n never happened. J just like the 
uh, Paul Manafort, Julian Assange meeting. That they are just so brazen in these lies that uh, they thought they could get away with uh, with those. And then there was, um, I, I think it was Nigerian uranium that uh, George mm-hmm. Bush said. Uh, we know uh, we have uh, intelligence assets that have confirmed uh, Saddam is getting yellow cake uranium from Niger. And then Joe Wilson writes in the New York Times, to their credit, uh, what I didn't find in Africa. And he refutes the whole thing. What is the likelihood that, you know, y- you would have caught that random anonymous uh, piece of information that someone would have heard it, thought it was about them, got it published in the New York Times? I mean, the things that they must get away with are uh, are just incredible. W- what were some other uh, lies besides uh, Prague, uh, Nigerian uranium? Uh, was there a specific WMD lie or was it just uh, hinted around? I remember that like one of the things that I remember from as being a kid at the time was aluminum tubes because I knew what aluminum was like yellow cake uranium. What was that? Right. But aluminum tubes, I remember they always just talk about all these aluminum tubes and it, they made it sound like so scary, like he was going to put some crazy chemicals in these aluminum tubes that use them to kill America. Uh, and how how those aluminum tubes would ever have gotten from Iraq to the United States was, you know, th- like things that I like had no ability to like question at the time because I was so young. But yeah, like that lie terrified me. And of course, th- there was nothing to it. The chemical weapons one was another one that was big, right? Saddam is working on chemical weapons. Saddam is working on chemical weapons. I want to bring this up because in, I want to say 2012 or 2013, I was listening to, um, Rush Limbaugh, and he goes, and we just had a report that they found chemical weapons in Iraq. I was right all along. And so I went home and I looked it up. And you know what? It turned out that that story actually debunked what Rush Limbaugh, like the the whole chemical weapons narrative, because what they were saying is that the chemical weapons that existed in Iraq were held and stored by the UN. Saddam Hussein didn't have access to them, never used them or anything. He gave up those chemical weapons. The only reason they were still in Iraq is for people who know things about chemical weapons, like once they sit around for a while, they could be really difficult to use, especially if like our mover, especially if the containers they're in are becoming maybe questionably uh, like stable or I don't know, seal worthy I, I have no idea what the word would be uh but anyway there's a, a lot of you know like reasons that you wouldn't want to move chemical weapons that have been sitting in a warehouse for years and years and years and so rather than doing that you just leave them in place until they eventually over time become you know less potent or uh lose the, their potency entirely and, and things like, and that's what they were going to do. And so, yeah, you had like 10 years after the war, Rush Limbaugh going, ha, I was right all along, when actually that story was debunking the, the chemical weapons. And so it's uh, it's just amazing how many lies they told and how many lies they'll continue to tell, even if those lies actually, you know, are, are stories about them being wrong, but, you know, they'll stretch the truth and make it up. Most important information about the Syrian conflict. Oh man, this is this is a hard one because I like Syria is one of these wars where Iraq and Afghanistan again. You know, I was a kid for where this one. There are so many things that have driven me crazy about this war, but I, I guess uh, the like the Kurdish issue versus the mis- mythical moderates, and this is who the U.S. is backing in Syria. And so Scott has a. A lot of great information on the Timber Sycamore uh, program in the book and how the U.S. was uh, backing the, you know, quote unquote, mythical moderates or the moderates, uh, what they called the Free Syrian Army, which was really just, you know, maybe there were a couple of people who weren't extremists, but, you know, they were joining up or had their weapons taken from them by uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq that had moved over to Syria. Uh, The group led by Al-Jolani, who was the follower of Zawahiri, right? You know, these are, these are hardcore jihadists that the U.S. was backing in Syria. And even in 2012, uh, then uh, Director of National Intelligence, Michael Flynn, signed off on a memo that said that this program ran the risk of creating an Islamic caliphate in Syria and Western Iraq. And that's, of course, exactly what happened. And so, 
you know, the, the U.S. carries out this massive multi-billion dollar program years and years and years until 2017 when Trump finally shuts it off. Of course, this is run by the uh, the the ogre John Brennan, who spent the first few years of uh, his time, uh, at, you know, he was involved in the Bush torture program, ends up being, uh, I call him Obama's ogre because he kept him in a, the basement running the drone program, picking drone targets for the first few years in the administration, then becomes CIA director and runs this timber sycamore program. Uh, army and backing on these jihadists in Syria. We'll talk about Libya later, but a lot of these jihadists and the weapons that the jihadists got come from Libya. Uh, a lot of them are veterans of the Iraq war who fought against the United States, killed Americans in the Iraq war, right? You know, these are the people that the United States is now arming and backing in Syria, all because, you know, the slogan, Assad must go. So, of course, you know, this blows up into the Islamic State, and now we have another idea. We're going to start arming and backing the Syrian Kurds. And so, you know, especially around, like, I think 2014 and 2015, 2016, there's a lot of stories about how the Pentagon-backed Kurds are fighting against the CIA-backed jihadists in these crazy kind of things. And so um, then... It got so bad. There, there's uh, the this area in northern Syria, kind of along uh, the the border with Turkey, like you know, 20 or 30 miles into Syria. And uh, there's two towns. One's Al Bab, and the other one is Mambij. And I can't remember exactly which side controlled which, but the U.S. Uh, Army Rangers and Special Forces were driving their Humvees with big American flags. So they put, you know, giant poles with giant American flags on the back and would drive between these two towns where on one side there's American CIA bat jihadists and on the other side Pentagon bat uh, Syrian Kurds, which, you know, everybody likes to pretend like the Syrian Kurds are like the, I don't know, Westerners of the Middle East. It's just not true. You know, I mean, they, they had their own problems, carry out war crimes there. And then, you know, right now, conscripting 15-year-old girls to go fight uh, the, the Islamic State for them. So, yeah, the, you know, these people aren't like Democrats or anything like that, right? Uh, but, you know, we're having to drive American forces between the two sides. And apparently the, those like, you know, Humvees were coming under fire and everything like that because the American bad sides in, in Syria hated each other so much. And, you know, this isn't, I guess, like the most important part of the whole Syrian war. We could talk about the chemical weapons attacks and the false flags there and uh, Trump bombing Assad, uh, the OPCW and the American influence. But just, I, I guess, as far as this, the Syrian war goes, the part that I just can't help but talk about is how the Americans have no sensible policy whatsoever. If it's Iraq, we back the Shia militias. If it's Syria, we bomb the Shia militias, even though the Shia militias were fighting the Islamic State on both sides of the Iraq and Syria border, which the Islamic State erased. And so it made no sense. Uh, we're, we're backing the Kurds, but they're fighting the, the Sunnis that we're also backing. We're backing the Kurds, but our NATO ally Turkey is bombing them. The, the whole thing is absolutely insane. It makes absolutely no sense. And it's all like was initially started on the, the policy that we have to remove us out from power because he's some kind of bad guy. But really, you know, Obama Obama revealed the truth in his interview with Jeffrey Goldberg when he said it's about taking Iran down a peg, right? Like it was never really about uh, Assad. It was about removing uh, Iran's ally in Syria, which happened to be Assad. But the result of this war, look, you know, when Assad's back against was against the wall and ISIS was advancing on Damascus where they were going to carry out a genocide against the Alawites and the ethnic minorities of Syria. Yeah, the, the Syrians called on Assad, uh, on the Iranians and the Iranians uh, organized Shia militias and helped to, you know, along with the Russians turn back the advance of the Islamic State in Syria. And so, you, you know, what, what result did that have? Iran has far more power and influence in the Middle East, particularly Iraq and Syria, than they ever had before, because these were the people that turned back the Islamic State. You know, it's going to, I'm sure, be like a World War II Germany narrative, where uh, in the United States, we defeated the Nazis, but everybody, you know, else in the world knows the truth that, like, the Soviets did, like, the bulk of the work, right? Uh, you know, we're going to pretend like it was us that, you know, it was the Americans that feed the Islamic State, but really it was Assad and Iran and Russia.
is uh was Soleimani uh someone who uh, played an important factor in uh fighting against the uh, Islamic state yeah absolutely and that's where like I think Soleimani was popular in Iran previously but became largely popular in the Middle East and you know on the second anniversary of his assassination uh just a couple weeks ago there were attacks against American forces in Syria, Iraq, the Houthis uh, stole a UAE boat off the coast of Yemen uh, because, you know, Soleimani was such an important figure in resisting uh, the, what the Americans were trying to do in the Middle East, including, uh, the, you know, leading to the rise of ISIS and feeling like that, you know, ISIS was the lesser of two evils versus Assad. And at times, you know, even if ISIS was crossing open desert, if they were moving towards Assad's positions, we you know we had the opportunity of bomb them. We didn't because we wanted you know ISIS to to do more damage to Assad and all that. And so yes, yeah, Soleimani was very important in uh, organizing the uh, resist the resistance to ISIS. You know particularly on the ground from the Shia militias. And so if you're uh, an an Alawite, a Drew a Shia that lives in the Middle East, I'm sure. You feel somewhat grateful to Soleimani because had the other side won this war, you would be dead or uh, displaced from your home. Like, you know why? Like, uh, I've talked to special operations forces who are on the ground in Syria. The things that they told me that ISIS did to people who are refused to convert. I mean, you know, we we see some of the videos that they showed online and all that. They're absolutely horrific. Um, But some of the things they did to people who refused just to convert, right? Like, you know, you're 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 the wrong kind of Muslim for the Islamic State, and so you know you're gonna die is kind of the situation, right? And so the the fact that Soleimani and the Iranians turned them back is absolutely huge. I will mention that it, on the Iraqi side, uh, it wasn't just Soleimani. There's another guy, Al Mohandis, who was also assassinated along with Soleimani. And uh, his death is also very significant for the the Shia militias in Iraq. Uh, one more thing on the on the cruelty of the Islamic State, and I, I think this ties into the stu- things I was saying with the prisons and that the U.S. was running in Iraq earlier. One of the things that the Islamic State really did is they replicated what the United States did to people, uh, you know, dressing them in orange jumpsuits, putting them in stress positions, and I don't know about waterboarding, but different things that the Americans uh, did to torture people in Guantanamo Bay and black sites around the world. The Islamic State did that to their Western captives, uh, you know, while they held territory. So, like, you know, uh, James Foley and all those people, you know, suffered that way, in part because of what did Cheney and George Bush did to other innocent Muslims. And any uh, any other information you have on either of the uh, very uh, flimsy evidence-based uh, chemical attacks, but one under Biden and one under Trump, if I remember correctly. Uh, one under um, Obama, Biden. And two I'm under sorry. Trump. I'm sorry, so I, the, I, I the get first, the two mixed up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the first one, uh, 2013, Eastern Ghouta. There is a chemical, a sarin chemicals weapons attack that kills, I think, between like 600 and 1500 people, depending on whose uh, numbers you're reading. Initially, this is blamed on uh, the Syrian government. Later, there is a really good report by Theodore Postal, who works at uh, MIT, a literal rocket scientist, who goes and shows that. Because of where this rocket landed, we know that it could have, you know, fired from X range to X range, right? You could look at a rocket and you could see that, like, it could only fly so far. And so then you could draw, like, a circle and say, like, well, it was fired from inside this range. And it turns out all that range range was uh, territory held by the Syrian opposition. And so it's very clear that Assad did not carry out that attack. Now, that attack did have important consequences because, you know, even though we know that Theodore Postal debunked it, it took a long time to happen. And it's not accepted in the mainstream media, really. You know, I mean, if you're on CNN, you could say Assad carried out chemical weapons attacks in eastern Ghouta and and nobody's going to question it, right? Uh, But so... Obama had drawn a red line, whatever the hell that means, on chemical weapons, saying that, well, if Assad uses chemical weapons, I'm going to do something about it. And so this happened, and everybody was saying, oh, Obama, you got to do something because Assad used chemical weapons, even though that wasn't true. 
Obama was living in a reality that it was true. And so Putin helped negotiate a deal with Assad to take and destroy all of Syria's chemical weapons. And, you know, Will Porter, the co-host of my show, a great dude, like one of my best friends, Will Porter, has done an excellent job, uh, you know, reading all the OPCW reports, including the ones in Arabic, contacting the OPCW, and essentially ensuring that the OPCW was comfortable that there were no chemical weapons in Syria and that there were a couple sites where I guess they left a few things. Uh, but it was more a result of it, just because conflict was going on. You, you know, I mean, you don't want to move chemical weapons through Damascus if there's a possibility that like a mortar could hit the truck, right? And, and so these kind of, I, I guess, were some of the, the decisions going on. In fact, Trump bombed one of the sites that the OPCW had said that, you know, they haven't fully cleared or something like that. But anyways, you know, uh, as Ray McGovern always says, uh, Putin essentially pulled Obama's chestnuts out of the fire here because Obama was in a position where he essentially had put him his back against the wall saying that he would go to war with Assad, but nobody wanted to do that in the United States. And so by Putin orchestrating this deal, it got the chemical weapons out of Syria. Now then, this uh, next one, Kanshe Kun is in 2017, and there was a little like concrete building in Kanshe Kun, Syria that was hit with a Syrian airstrike that the Russians notified the Americans of before the airstrike was carried out. Syria says, and I think it's the case, that it was a conventional uh, weapon that they used and the strike hit a meeting of Al-Qaeda leadership. Uh, what happened afterwards is underneath, they. so one of the ways that Al-Qaeda, when they have territory, they control the population, is they control all the vital resources. And in a war zone, you know, that that's not just food. It's food, it's medicine, it's cleaning supplies, so bleach, pneumonia, it's fertilizer, uh, and some of it is uh, phosphorus base, it's weapons, explosives, and all that. So when the strike hits the building, apparently all that is in the basement. And uh, there's good reporting by Seymour Hirsch on this at the London Review of Books. And they look at the places where the alleged uh, rockets hit versus, you know, where this building was and, uh, you know, the wind direction and everything like that. And it's pretty clear that what happened here was that people did die from whatever substances were released from that burning building. But at the same time, that isn't like they dropped a sarin bomb on Kanche Kun or I think even intentionally did this. Again, the Americans were notified of the strike. And then the third major one was Duma in 2019. This is an area outside of Damascus. Um, initially, it's reported that it, it was sarin. There's no evidence at all anywhere, any soil samples, anything that sarin was used in Duma at all. No proof of that. Now they allege that it was a chlorine attack, and that's because in a war zone, uh, you, you know, there, there's bleach, right, in different places. You're disinfecting things in different places. And so they find bleach or chlorine in the soil. It's not clear that the, the soil samples that were taken, that there was any kind of weaponized chlorine. All they, they find are traces of uh, chlorine. So, again, it could have been bleach or any kind of household cleaner in some soil. Uh, they also have a couple canisters that they say, you know, one landed on a bed, uh, one landed in a building, and they have a whole bunch of dead bodies, right? Um, but none of the actual evidence, and Aaron Mate, uh, who writes at the Gray Zone, Gray Zone and on his own Substack, has done the absolute best work on this, explaining how... Basically, what happens is that there's uh, a lot of bombing going on in Duma because this is an area held by the Syrian opposition and snipers and, you know, other militants are carrying out mortar strikes into the rest of downtown Damascus from Duma. So, you know, the Syrian government is trying to retake this territory. It's held by a Saudi-backed group that's a, a Salafist group. It's not ISIS, maybe, but, 
you know, they're, they're certainly uh, very, very far right conservative uh, Islamist, right? And, it, it, you know, they're fighting against the Syrian government and they're carrying out heavy bombing. And so it's very dusty and people start showing up to the hospital not being able to breathe really well. Some guy comes out and starts yelling, gas, 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 gas. And so everybody just goes into mode and, and starts treating it like you would gas because you just dump water on people. It's like, you know, a low cost like kind of thing. And uh, that pretty much is where the, the whole story stems from. And so, you know, it's a little bit different where 2013 was an actual false flag. 2017 is a distorted narrative. And this one is just an invented story. You know, the, the best evidence they have is the CNN lady sniffing the backpack going, it smells like bleach to me, which is absolutely nothing, you know? Like, here's some chemical weapons. Please put your face into it and sniff it. And that's what the CNN lady does. Um, yeah, so all the chemical weapons attached were fates are, are not you, actually carried out by Assad. Are you familiar with the current national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, sending an email to the Clinton campaign about AQ? Can you explain uh, that email briefly just to finish yes, off the so, Syria discussion? Well, we're going – we're probably going back to like 2011, 2012 here when Sullivan sends this email. And I think we get it from maybe the WikiLeaks or maybe the Leopold uh, releases. But, you know, this is from Hillary Clinton's emails and one of her advisors is the current national security advisor, Jade Sullivan. And he says AQ is on our side in this one, boss referring to uh, the Syrian war. And in fact, afterwards, Hillary Clinton gives an interview where she talks about the fact that, you know, it's really hard to back a side in Syria because, you know, Al-Qaeda is fighting against Assad. And do we want to take Al-Qaeda's side in this fight? And, you know, that is what the Americans were doing in Syria. But yeah, even the Hillary Clinton emails absolutely show that's the case. Uh, again, you have the Clinton emails, you have Flynn's uh, DIA memo. And also, uh, once he becomes Secretary of State after Clinton, John Kerry uh, is on a couple of recorded calls where he's talking about how the United States flooded Syria with weapons and all that did is help the Islamic State. And, um, geez, I forgot the other one I was going to mention, but basically Kerry was uh, just, oh, he was talking about how the United States thought that they could control ISIS and lead to the chaotic collapse of the Syrian government. Next, we uh, have the uh, Libyan uh, conflict. What is the most important uh, aspects of the U.S. military intervention in Libya that people should know about? Yeah, so I guess start off with they lied us into this war, too. Very important point. Uh, there's a couple of ways this happened. The first is that they claimed that Gaddafi was essentially going to carry out a genocide in eastern Libya. That after, uh, so the Arab Spring happens in neighboring Tunisia. Uprising also happens in Libya. And uh, a big part of the uprising in Libya is militants called the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, I believe. Um, yeah, and, L I F G. Okay, great, great, great. Cool. I, uh, I almost missed it up with Tigray, the Tigray People's Liberation Front. So, anyways, yeah. So, yeah, the the and these are basically the the Al Qaeda guys in Libya. And some of them veterans from Iraq War II who fought against the Americans there and everything, right? Um, and so they take some control of a couple cities, including Benghazi and everything like that. So Gaddafi puts his army together and they. They go off and they start, you know, taking back the territory from uh, the, the the jihadists. And so I think the uh, Americans were saying things like Gaddafi was going to go in and kill every man, woman and child, which he took back territory and that didn't happen. Now, I mean, he's a he's a, an African dictator and it's war like, you know, people die. It's not I'm not trying to, like, make excuses for it or anything like that, but at the same time, it's not like the Americans would say, like, we committed a genocide in Fallujah any of the times that we, you know, cleared that place of militants. And so I, I think there's a lot of room between, you know, what the Americans say happened, what actually happened, which was, 
Gaddafi taken it back, civilians died, of course, but they also claim things like the Americans were, uh, or the, the, the Gaddafi was giving his army Viagra so they could rape more. And, you know, it, it's the old, you know, level of babies on bayonets, level of like stupid evil war propaganda that they were carrying out. Uh, there's plenty of reason to believe that, you know, the, the war didn't need to happen. Yeah, Gaddafi would have taken back Gadda uh, from uh, Benghazi from the militants. I'm sure civilians would have died in that. But, I mean, uh, Libya has been a nightmare after, and predictably so. A couple things from, I guess, you know, before the U.S. starts bombing, uh, you know, the, there's debate around it in the United States. One of the reasons people are saying, don't do it, please, for the love of God, don't do it, is that... You know, Libya is kind of a fictitious country. It's a massive state on the Mediterranean, but it stretches well into, uh, you know, the, the desert there. And the aquifers are in the south. And it takes a kind of careful balancing maneuver to, to make Libya one somewhat stable country. There, there's a big divide between the east and the west. And this has absolutely been proven in the 10 years since Gaddafi has been removed from power because there's still several governments you can't even say two there's several different you know governments and power factions and, and everything like that including you know one of the people that was supposed to run for president the libyan elections that were supposed to be last month and got canceled was this man saif al-islam who is the son of Muammar Gaddafi and was, I, I think, likely to be the successor should Gaddafi have remained in power. But he was even willing to essentially depose his father and essentially just take over uh, the throne, uh, his father's throne, throne in Tripoli and allow, you know, that to, to be the situation and, and to just move on from Gaddafi and everything like that. And on uh, unfortunately, the, the U.S. decided that it was better to bomb Gaddafi out of power uh, than to actually, you know, try to allow Libya to have its own transition. Uh, you know, Libya was supposed to be a very big win for the uh, Obama hawks, Hillary Clinton, uh, Amory Slaughter, and um, I think Michelle Flournoy was on that one, uh, Sam Power. All these people really want this war. Now, of course, it turned into the absolute humanitarian uh, catastrophe that was predictable. And we also have information here from Hillary Clinton's emails. This from Sidney Blumenthal to Hillary Clinton explaining that there was going to likely be genocides against uh, the, the black population of Libya. You know, it's a it's a split country. There's a lot of Arabs there. The uh, Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, obviously, that's that's Islamic. Those are Arabs. And so uh, there's a village or a town called Torega in Libya, 30,000 people. It's made up of Tuareg's an ethnic minority that Gaddafi imported into Libya to, uh, you know, migrant work and work in his security forces and everything like that. No longer exists. You know, they're all either dead or chased off to Mali where another war broke out because of this war, uh, which we probably won't have time to talk about today, but is, uh, uh, you know, very significant. Um, but anyways, yeah, so th there is, I guess, really no, no state in Libya without Muammar Gaddafi, right? And that, that's absolutely been proven true. And, you know, we are warning about genocide and that actually not uh, uh, like full genocide of the Libyan population, but of some targeted ethnic minorities in Libya. Yeah, they were absolutely completely removed from the country because of the U.S. intervention. So, yeah, well, I don't know if you got anything else on Libya you want to ask. Uh, no, uh, I just wanted people to know that the um, uh, the Viagra story was actually mentioned by Wolf Blitzer on CNN. I mean, the the fake news that they're so terrified Alex Jones might be uh, telling people someday in the future that could rile up someone crazy. They explicitly go forward with uh, ju just unapologetically. No one gets fired. No one gets their accounts removed. It's <clears throat> it, it's just so so brazen and uh, and in your face when yeah, it comes wait, to. Yeah. You know what? Let's uh, just stay on that real quick. So, the, you know, one, as predictable, you know, the, the humanitarian consequences in Libya were absolutely awful. But one of the things that happened was uh, you, you slave markets and, and, you know, chattel slavery, like selling people at markets to go do forced labor. 
um, you know, in Libya. And it's just absolutely crazy, right? You know, all these people, again, who weren't a false news and the rise of Trump and everything like that. It was their fake news that led to the rise of slave markets in Libya. And, you know, this is like the, the greatest wet dream of any Klansman that, it, you know, could possibly exist. If Trump really was the grand wizard and he could reinstall the, the selling of black people in a country, but it was Obama and CNN that did it. Right. Like the, the disconnect there between what actually happens and what they claim they're worried about is absolutely unbelievable. They create almost all the, the crisis they're constantly worried about. And just to talk uh, on this point a little bit more. So you've had I don't know if it's actually a million, but hundreds of thousands of people die in the past 10 years attempting to cross from Libya into Europe. Right. And so you have the, the Democrats in the United States who are constantly crying about immigration and how cruel the Republicans are because they won't let people in and, uh, and all this, right? And yet they just let hundreds of thousands of people drown in the Mediterranean Sea because of their own war in Libya. And that, and so like, you know, I don't know if anybody was actually predicting that there would be slave markets in Libya after Obama's war there, but people were predicting that there would be a major refugee crisis. And as uh, Ramsey Baroud uh, points out, he's a writer and uh, we reprint his work at antiwar.com. He has one of the best articles I have read in 2021 was Ramsey's. And he points out that Afghans, Drowning throughout the entire Obama administration, trying to cross from Libya into Europe. None of them care. None of them, oh, the poor Afghans, we have to save their, nothing. You know why? Because they were fleeing from the Taliban. And so, or not, from, excuse me, they were fleeing from the American war, not from the Taliban. And so if they end up in the West, there's no political benefit for the warmongers to have them there. But if you have Afghans who are fleeing the Taliban, well then, you know, those are people who, if there's a new government in Afghanistan, yeah, they could go back to their home. And so U.S. intervention, it, you know, this is the small sliver of Afghans who the, the U.S. intervention benefits are the ones that we want in the United States. That way they could be a community that advocates for war. But the actual refugees who spent 20 years fleeing America's wars have died all over the world. They've drowned in the English Channel. They drowned in the Mediterranean Sea. They drowned off the coast of Morocco trying to make it into Spain. And nobody has said a goddamn word about them because if they made it into the West, they wouldn't convey the political message that the warmongers want. And it, it just, it really pisses me off. Most important information about the uh, U.S. military intervention in Yemen. So... This is this is one of the wars I'm most passionate about, Keith, and it, it, you know it's because of Scott and uh, you know listening to his show that I knew how bad Yemen was going to be before it got as bad as it, it is now, and so the, I don't know. It, it's hard for me to pick like a most important thing, but Scott really highlights and always hones in on the fact that so what happened in Yemen, like go back to 2011. You had Ali Abdullah Saleh, who had been the ruler of Yemen since 1990. Uh, it, it has major protests rise up against him during the Arab Spring assassination attempt. He, he has to leave the country to get medical care. So he's effectively deposed. The U.S. organizes a one-man election. Hillary Clinton put together a one-man election, called it an election, and put um, Saleh's number two Hadi into power. Now, Yemen's a very complicated country, and I don't think Hadi ever like had a whole lot of actual authority in Yemen as far as like where his political faction is from and all of that. But uh, you know, he does get a two-year mandate and basically takes that two-year mandate and goes and pits a fight with this group in the north called the Houthis. The Houthis, you know. Uh, feel more than capable of taking on uh, the less powerful Hadi central government and actually win the war and take over the capital city of Sana'a. They didn't start the war, uh, the, the central government did, but they won it. They also, after uh, Saleh recovered from his assassination attempt and returns to Yemen, he uh, joins up with the Houthis. And so, you know, Yemen's not the United States, right? When Joe Biden became president on January 20th, 2020, 21, 
the the military is instantly he's the commander in chief, right? You know, the the Florida uh, division doesn't go off with Trump. Well, you know that happens in Yemen, where a good chunk of the army uh, goes and rallies to Salah's side because you know they don't care about Hillary Clinton's one man election. Like you know, Salah's their leader, and so uh, yeah, the the Houthis take over the country. And what does the United States do right after the Houthis take over? They start working with the Houthis to target AQAP in Yemen. And this is reported in uh, the Wall Street Journal and I believe the New York Times. And in both cases, it's very clear. And there's an article in Foreign Policy about uh, Lloyd Austin, the current Secretary of Defense, who was actually, and we'll talk about this, like so upset with the U.S. switching sides away from the Houthis uh, that, that he almost wrote a letter to Obama about it. But anyways, it's very clear that the U.S. was more than willing to work with the Houthis. But then the Houthis take more and more territory, more and more power, and uh, the Saudis get uncomfortable. And they have a new uh, deput- uh, new defense minister named Mohammed bin Salman, who is now the crown prince and de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia. But he sees a real opportunity in 2015 to launch what he thinks will be a very easy war to remove the Houthis from power and reinstall Hadi uh, to, to control in Yemen. And... It just doesn't doesn't happen. Uh, And so when the Saudis decide that they're going to wage a war against the Houthis, the Americans instantly switch sides in the war. They no longer bat the Houthis. They start uh, backing the Saudi attacks against the Houthis. But even worse, the Saudis and their Emirati partners in Yemen, on the ground in Yemen, start backing and aiding AQAP and the Islamic State faction in Yemen against the Houthis. And so the United States completely switched sides in this war. And it's just absolutely unbelievable that, you know, like uh, essentially all the wars that happened in in the post-Obama years, that, you know, they flipped from the Americans fighting against the terrorists to fighting for the terrorists, right? You know, in Libya, we're, we're fighting a war against Gaddafi, but who's it benefit? The, the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group in Syria were directly supporting the terrorists. There's absolutely no question about it. Nobody even even complains about it and is, you know, explicitly done so because, you know, the, the terrorists are apparently better than Assad, which is uh, completely absurd. And then Yemen's the, the other example where, you know, we back the, the side opposing the Houthis, who are the main enemies of al-Qaeda and uh, ISIS in Yemen. And then the our allies in Yemen, the Saudis and the Emiratis, explicitly back them, fund them just the, this past couple of weeks. There's uh, a couple areas in central Yemen. One is the Marib province, the other one is the Shabwa province. The Houthis were making progress in both Marib and Shabwa, and then the UAE has this group of 15,000 uh, Salafis. These are, you know, the hardcore, maybe not like Osama bin Laden worshipers, but certainly uh, violent Islamic extremists, right? 15,000 of them, they deploy them to Shabwa, they take territory back from the Houthi, right? Like, still, even to this day, the American side in this war is backing the most Islamic extremist faction against the side that is more than happy to work with the Americans to kill them. It's absolutely unbelievable. And then, uh, finally, most important information about uh, intervention in Somalia. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot here. And this is, uh, you know, one of the, the parts in the book where I think Scott has a real, uh, what what's the libertarian term, comparative advantage, where it's not like Scott knows as much about Somalia as he does Afghanistan, but he knows more about Somalia than essentially anybody else in the U.S. and really understands like the 20 year history 30-year history of the U.S. intervention in ism in Somalia, going all the way back to, like, the Black Hawk Down incident, which, to me, was just a Hollywood movie growing up, right? Um, So, yeah, definitely check out the Somalia chapter of this book. I guess the part that I, um, that's most interesting to me, and I think maybe has the most significance at the moment, is in 
so like there, there's this period in Somalia after the government collapses, right, where you have warlords controlling everything. And then it kind of involves into this semi-anarchist quasi-government called the Islamic Courts Union. It's a group of 13 uh, Islamic groups in uh, Somalia that essentially set up some kind of system to allow some kind of like justice to happen, right? Like there, there's some kind of court system now. Is it probably the greatest, like most liberal just system in the world? No, but if there is a standard of justice where like if somebody comes and steals three of your sheep, like you have somewhere to go to get some kind of restitution that is going to create a more civil society than if your only option is essentially to go like try to steal your sheep back or like, you know, kidnap your neighbor's kid and hold them at ransom, right? Like, you know, the, these are kind of the, the two situations uh, and, and so the Islamic Courts Union was bringing some stability, some uh, progress, some recovery to Somalia. And then the United States backed uh, an Ethiopian invasion of Somalia. And at the time, the group in control of Ethiopia was uh, the, the Tigrayans. And now they're a part of the TPLF, the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, which is at war with the uh, Ethiopian government right now. And I think that the U.S. has been pretty favorable and pushed the narrative of the Tigrayans quite a bit throughout that conflict. And in part because, you know, the, the, the uh, TPLF is like a, a proxy force of the U.S. where, you know, if they're... If we have a, a stop puppet in charge in Ethiopia, which is the second most populous African country, massive military. Uh, right now, they got a bunch of drones and everything like that. But, uh, you know, back when the U.S. was backing them, they had advanced military equipment, too. Then this could be deployed to the region to squash different groups. And Americans won't care, right? Like, if the, if the Ethiopians invade and are killing the Somalis... Keith, what chance do you think I have of convincing any kind of normie to listen to anything I have to say about that? If it's the Americans dropping bombs on Somalia, if American soldiers are dying in Somalia, then Americans will definitely care. And so, uh, yeah, the, the U.S. has used uh, the TPLF as a proxy force in Somalia in the past and uh, quashed the, the one real effort in the past couple decades that Somalia had towards establishing a, a more functioning society that, you know, actually uh, exists. Now, one other thing I want to mention, and I don't think this is in Scott's book. I didn't have a chance to re-skim through the Somali part, but uh, the, the last edit of the book I read before Scott published the final copy didn't have this in there. In 2016, the U.S. actually tried to wage a counterinsurgency effort, a new counterinsurgency effort in Somalia. And they tried to take over this town, Barari, from uh, the, the Al-Shabaab, which uh, after the Ethiopian uh, intervention in in Somalia, they crushed the Islamic Courts Union, and only one group of the Islamic Courts Union survived, and that was Al-Shabaab, which has become, uh, the, you know, the, the violent group. They publicly swear allegiance to Al-Qaeda, although I think it's kind of a, mis, a misnomer to say, like, this is an Al-Qaeda-linked group as if they're going to, like, carry out an attack against the West or something like that. You know, they'll target U.S. military personnel in neighboring Kenya, but, you know, they're, they're not crossing the Atlantic. Right. So um, anyways, the U.S. tries to wage this counterinsurgency against al-Shabaab. And in doing so, they partner with different branches of the Somali special forces and everything like that. It, the, the Somali special forces, for whatever reason, showed up to a town and executed 10 civilians. The Nets weed somebody from that town drove uh, a massive, like, multi-thousand pound, pound bomb, attempted to get into the area of Somalia that is, like, the the Baghdad green zone where, like, the international embassies and all that are, was unable to do so, but along that road is where all the refugees uh, and the displaced people in Somalia were living, and so he detonated the bomb there, uh, causing the biggest uh, terrorist attack in African history. And I believe this is October of 2016 that this attack happens, killing over 600 people. And they just have no idea how many people died because, you know, there's just refugees on the side of the road that were obliterated by the bomb blast. But 
you know, this is just another example of how, you know, American blowback creates terrorism and all that. The book is Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. Kyle, where is the best place to find your uh, collection of contributions? Ah, the Libertarian Institute is probably the best place for that, which is probably the best place to buy Fool's, uh, Fool's Errand and Enough Already and your coming book. I uh, hope I say that. If not, you could just edit it out. Um, <laughs> but Scott tells me about it, so I assume it's cool to say. Uh, let's see. So, yeah, yeah. So check out the Libertarian Institute. I am the co-host of the Conflicts of Interest podcast with Connor Freeman and Will Porter. Will's uh, still on hiatus, but he he will be returning. And so me, Connor, and Will put out at least three shows a week on foreign policy, mostly also cover war, COVID, that kind of stuff, too. Uh, I do a news roundup at the Libertarian Institute Monday through Friday, uh, all the what I think are the most important news stories of the day. And then I'm at uh, antiwar.com as well. I put the viewpoints there together. Uh, so if you want to know what I uh, you know, think are smart anti-war opinions, then check out the, the viewpoints at antiwar.com and the spotlight and all that. Thanks to everyone for watching. Keith and I don't tread on anyone in the Libertarian Institute. Kyle, thank you for your time, brother. Thanks, Keith.